This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. We're getting to the end of August, which means we are at the end of our August-long book club series. It's been a real treat. We are closing it out with Ruman Alam's Leave the World Behind, which is going to be a movie on Netflix later this fall. Um, But before that, we're also heading into festival season. Um, And you know we all get very excited about this. We have a really incredible lineup of first looks running on VF.com in the past week, this week, and the following. Um, Some of them have run and some of them have not, so we'll still be keeping some secrets. Um, But to kind of tee ourselves up for Fall festival season. By the time we talk next week, uh, the other three of you will be on your way to various Labor Day weekend festivals. Um, so the energy is really there. Um, I want to dig into a bunch of the first looks that David has written for us. But before that, I mean, all three of you are talking to reps. You're going to screenings ahead of these festivals. Um, I feel like as opposed to a couple weeks ago when we were all afraid that every movie might move off the fall calendar and it might be over, uh, I feel like the energy is picking up. Um, is that the the right vibe you're getting? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this time of year uh, is often so optimistic and excited. And and I think it's one of my favorite times of year because anything is possible. Um, Every movie's a contender. Every movie's a contender. Every call we have is like, this is the most commercial or prestige or there is some (laughs) adjective plugged in for every movie that it is the most. So... I I have a lot of optimism. I I think these first looks always get me really excited because you see the beautiful imagery and we get to talk to a lot of the filmmakers. Um, And I think the lineups look strong, especially Venice and Telluride, which we're both we're we're both be heading out to. So um, what Telluride lineup? (laughs) I mean, the hypothetical Telluride lineup that we may or may not have some idea about. I'm feeling good. And I try to soak in this feeling because once the festivals are over, it's a little different. Richard, how's it feel in New York, or is it just too humid for anyone to be excited about anything? We don't get quite the uh, onslaught of, you know, the, the campaigns really churn into motion on the West Coast. Um, <laughs> but it's happening here. You know, they've already shown me both Wicked movies. Um, I've seen Dune <laughs> 3. Um, yeah, so I'm, oh, shoot, I'm not supposed to say I know, yeah, you're that. embargoed on all of that, Richard. <laughs> yeah, whoops. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's kind of a scramble to see, like, oh, is there anything I can see before the festivals? But, like, regardless of that, there's so much coming in the next couple of weeks at those festivals. Um, that it really feels exciting after a a long wait. We had Barbie and Oppenheimer to kind of chatter about for months, but now that that's passed, everyone's asking me questions about, like, Maestro and other things that people are very excited about because trailers have dropped and whatnot. 
Yeah, I mean, even further down the road, speaking of Maestro, it announced this big um, event at New York Film Festival in early October. And then the Toronto schedule is finally out. So for me, I'm going to Toronto and I'm finally like getting my schedule together and doing the Sandra Huller double feature of Anatomy of a Fall in the Zone of Interest that will probably bum me out. Um, <laughs> but I'm ready for it. Um, so there's just it. You feel like two months kind of expanding in front of you, even though it's those um, it's Telluride and Venice that are the most eminent. Yeah. I think the most exciting thing looking at like a a Toronto lineup, which, you know, doesn't have a ton of overlap from Venice or Telluride, which, you know, I I know has been so disappointing for some people because they were hoping to catch some big titles that they couldn't see in the mountains or in the canals. Um, But I feel like Toronto holds the potential for a lot of discovery. And Mm -hmm. I think the season overall holds that. There are some things that we kind of assume are sure bets, you know, a movie from David Fincher, a movie from Emerald Fennel, a movie from Bradley Cooper. But there's a lot else out there that actually David and Rebecca have helped clarify with some first looks that like, I don't really know which directions to be turning right now, which is an exciting place to be compared to some festival seasons past where you kind of have a top 10 of things that you are pretty sure are going to be things we're talking about for the next many months. This year, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And um, David, kind of to pivot to you and your first looks, uh, one of the first ones you did was for something that we already know a little bit about. And it's kind of an interesting twist on these fall festivals. You know, I mentioned Anatomy of a Fall and Zone of Interest, those, you know, canned movies coming to Toronto as a real tradition. Um, But Sundance movies holding over is more of a question mark and can sometimes be a huge success and sometimes not. So I love that we kind of got to jump in on fair play and and bring it back from Sundance to, to kind of see how that fares in the fall season. Yeah, that was a fun one to start off with. Uh, I did miss the Zone of Interest book club. And so I just want to state again for the record that I'm pumped for that movie. (laughs) And I will not be bummed out by a second Sandra Huller experience. (laughs) I mean, if you'd read the book, The Zone of Interest, maybe you'd be more prepared. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, But yeah, Fair Play is not a a bummer by any means. And I think that's its real power this award season. Uh, We debuted the trailer uh, and spoke with the first-time writer-director Claude DeMont for that piece. And, you know, going into the fall festivals this year, one thing that I'm really excited by, perhaps, is the dynamic range of movies that could also enter Oscar play this year. I think a big talking point that frustrated me last year was the big contenders to come out of Telluride, Venice, uh, Toronto were movies like Tar and Women Talking and The Whale. And these were movies that kind of got stuck, fairly or not, those are movies of different quality, I would argue, uh, with labels of sort of homework and and hmm. uh, the, f- the feeling that they didn't do well at the box office because of how they connected with audiences. And I love two of those movies. <laughs> so I didn't think it was necessarily a fair conversation. That said, this year, you have a lot of different kinds of movies um, that I think some of which are really audience friendly, uh, to to speak to what you're saying earlier, Katie, that could kind of hit that Venn diagram a little bit more effectively. And Fair Play is absolutely, for me, at the top of that list. It's a very commercial movie. It's Uh, Domont resists the erotic thriller label, but it is a thriller with erotic elements. (laughs) It has two really uh, explosive, chewy performances at its center. And it's it's a talking point movie. It's a movie you want to talk about when you leave the theater and see where you fell uh, as its power play really keeps shifting back and forth between the couple at its center. Um, So it's it's a movie I'm really excited about uh, as it hits Toronto and hopefully uh, leads a long life on Netflix. 
Yeah, we mentioned Sandra Huller earlier, and I think Alden Ehrenreich is in a slightly different category here, but kind of coming off of Oppenheimer and now having this, like he's just back and visible in a way. And it's always just interesting when someone has two performances out in the same season, um, even if it doesn't yield a nomination. It, I think it makes you want to talk about them more and talk about what they can do. And don't forget, Katie, he had Cocaine Bear, which was a hit. In and the that winter. came out this year, yeah, huh? Yeah. Amazing how time works. But Fair Play is a great example of what I was talking about with the Toronto lineup is that like at Sundance, we had, you know, some marching orders going in and that one was kind of a question mark. And then it was really one of the big hits of the festival. And I, I'm glad to see, uh, with David's help, uh, that that movie is now kind of like restarting that momentum um, because it's definitely worth seeing for its performances, the writing, the filming is great. Uh, it looks very much like it's in New York City, except they shot there, what was it, David, like one or two days? Yes. <laughs> really? And the rest it's was in insane. like Serbia or something. Um, wow. I, yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah, and they built all their sets from scratch. Yeah, That's incredible. That office is really an authentic New York office. Yeah. And, and to that point, you know, it's a movie that I would hope gets a lot of credit as a true independent production. Netflix bought it out of Sundance in a very <laughs> splashy deal. But I know... It's talking point with Netflix that they distribute movies around this time of year at such a range of scale. Like you have a movie like, you know, Leave the World Behind coming at the end of the year, from which I understand is, you know, it's a bigger budget uh, endeavor. And then this is a movie that is is very scrappy. It comes together through a particular vision and a determination, say, in the production design to execute it in a really particular way. And I do hope that while it is a very entertaining and enjoyable movie, it also gets some attention for those elements. You know, that's interesting about Netflix, not to go on a full sidebar, but, you know, not knowing how big the killer is. And, you know, I don't think David Fincher makes small movies, but they don't seem to have anything like gigantic Irishman scaled this year, which is an interesting tack for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I remember the year we had Don't Look Up, Power of the Dog and Lost Daughter, <laughs> all of which did quite well and all of which were completely different. But the Lost Daughter is kind of more of the fair play size thing where it's small and scrappy, yes. but really grabs people by the throat. And from a first-time filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Maestro could be big-ish, but I don't know. I've, judging from the trailer, which we'll talk about, like I, it seems like it's maybe more in the sort of Phantom Thread size vein than, you know, some huge sprawling biopic. But or if Mank Netflix size, I guess Mank was kind of big. Yeah, Mank was kind of big. But I, I wonder if, you know, if Netflix is more spread out this year versus putting a lot of resources on one huge title, like, does that that'll affect presumably how they campaign and maybe they can, you know, allocate resources for Coleman Domingo in Rustin and uh, people in Fair Play or people behind the camera in Fair Play or, you know, Cooper or whoever else. Like, I, I just think it, it could be an exciting sort of strategy to watch unfold, I guess. Yeah. It's there's just their slate is so big. I, I mean, uh, David did a great first look on Nyad, which I'm also really excited about. Um, but that's another one of their films. I just so many performances to sort of push this year. It's going to be really interesting to see how they do that. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. 
But when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Do you want to jump ahead to Naya, David, and your new best friend, Jodie Foster, who um, every <laughs> every quote she gave in that first look was better than the last? I would say new best friend only because she is so clearly Annette Benning's new best friend and, <laughs> and just gave the most amazing quotes uh, in in honor of her. Uh, it's a it's a major vehicle for both Annette Benning and Jodie Foster, but especially Annette Benning. Um, obviously, I think we should have the disclaimer that it, it can be clear in some of these that we are aware of what these movies are, but they are embargoed titles. Um, but that's pretty clear just by the way that the film is being positioned. So I think it's safe to say. Um, Benning had this one quote in the in the piece uh, that I thought was really. I found very moving. She said, we build these cages for ourselves in our brains about what we can and can't do. We get so used to that that we sort of even forget that they're there. And as I was writing the piece, I realized that while she was talking about the movie and playing Diana Nyad, this kind of superhuman swimmer who completed a hundred plus mile swim from Cuba to Florida in her 60s, there's a kind of metaphor there for, for her career and what it took for her to really inhabit this part. She trained for a full year. It's a character really unlike anyone she's played before, just in terms of temperament and that just unbelievable drive and determination that uh, is required for that kind of feat. And Annette Benning's Oscar history is a storied one. It's <laughs> uh, been talked about on this podcast many, many times. And so without predicting anything, or um, wading into that discourse, I do think that there's a, a kind of beautiful narrative here of what this character is, what this character accomplishes in terms of never giving up, in terms of realizing this lifelong goal uh, and what it took for her to get there and what her careers looked like to this point. I loved the, also the quote from Benning in your piece, David, where she said, fuck Hillary Swank. I thought that was so moving. <laughs> and she said, Natalie Portman, I've got my eye on her. Yeah, yeah. She actually, she didn't uh, refer to them by name. She referred to them as uh, certain 20th century women. <laughs> Do we all feel like we hold our breath when we head into an Annette Benning Oscar season? Uh, it just, I don't yes. think anybody wants Sorry. to be like the odds on favorite. <laughs> going into the season like that's such a, a position of power that can backfire sometimes so it's almost like we want to be like oh no it's fine like it doesn't have to be a big deal but like secretly want Annette Benning to win her Oscar finally yeah I I, yes. I have high hopes um, for her I mean you know like I, she's one of the greats and I think she doesn't always get counted in those ranks when people kind of assess the streeps and the closes and the whoever else is of the world mm -hmm. um, Benning you know has maybe not been in quite as many flashy movies but um 
she works a little bit less, but like she's just so good um, almost all the time. And and so this kind of thing, you know, like you said, David, without predicting anything, you know, there's a physical feat involved. It's a biopic. You know, it's from Oscar-winning documentary filmmakers. Uh, like I don't know. I just feel like the, the, you know, who knows what's what else is coming down the pike. But like um, that looks to be the makings of uh, a pretty sturdy run towards the Oscars. To uh, the earlier discussion around Netflix balancing things, the best actress race is quite insane for them because you have Nyad, which, you know, we can infer maybe going to Telluride based on the language of its Toronto premiere announcement. Um, you have Maestro, which, you know, this movie's been buzzed for a long time and suddenly the trailer and poster comes out and Carrie Mulligan is first billed. She is the person on the poster and the whole marketing apparatus, which is, of course, driven through an awards prism, is very much centered on her character, that love story with Leonard Bernstein, and clearly it's uh, a performance that Netflix is very excited about. And then you also have Natalie Portman in May-December, who I think is pretty amazing in that movie, uh, which is also getting a push. That movie is opening New York Film Festival for Netflix. They acquired it out of Cannes. And that just feels like three very strong, you know, on paper at least, best actress contenders. And that's Netflix alone. Yep. <laughs> that is Netflix alone. So how they prioritize that, I think the kinds of conversations that start popping up in Venice and Telluride in New York will really determine that course. Also with maybe no one able to do any interviews or press at all if this strike never ends. So oh, that. It's, it's going to be a super unique uh, strategy, I'm sure. I'm proud of us for, you know, not mentioning it until this point. We, we <laughs> Sorry, guys. I had to say the yeah. S word. Well, I was going to ask because, you know, going down your list of first looks, you have both faux and fingernails, which are kind of these sci-fi-ish. I haven't seen either of them. I'm going off of what you told me. But they're relationship movies, basically, between these very exciting stars who you were not able to talk to. But it was it's interesting reading the piece, hearing the directors and, um, you know, one case, the novelist of faux kind of talk about, like, what they brought to the film. It's a, we're, we're looking at these actors through a different prism. It's been an interesting experience. Yes. Uh, I should also mention that those Benning and Foster interviews were done pre-strike yes. uh, for the Nyan First Look. Um, but yeah, in the case of Faux and Fingernails, they're just ensemble pieces with a lot of our favorite actors. Uh, in the case of Faux, it's Paul Mescal and Saoirse Ronan. Amazon has that movie. It is, I believe, the only, you know, at least of these Starry Fall movies, world premiere for New York. And from what I understand, that was territory it had sort of wanted for itself pretty early on. Possibly because of strike resolution timing is our guess, maybe? Possibly. Okay. I mean, I think it's we've we haven't talked about the New York lineup as much uh, on this show, but it's a really stacked <laughs> lineup this year, even for that festival. And I, I have to believe that there is some hope dicting there in terms of availability of certain talent based on how the next month might go. Yeah, I mean, there's titles going to Venice and New York, maybe, or we suspect Telluride in New York and skipping Toronto that would normally go to Toronto. And you're thinking, oh, maybe the strike is over by early October. Um, yeah, this is our guesswork. And and certainly it's not looking probable, but at least you can game it out a little bit uh, and have a slightly better chance of being able to have a 
appropriately starry premiere. And you'd certainly want that for a movie like Faux. I mean, the whole selling point is the two actors at its center. Um, Aaron Pierre is also in a pretty key role. Um, it's a very hard movie to talk about without spoiling. Yeah. Um, so I, w- I would point people to the novel by Ian Reid if they're interested in, in the story behind it. Uh, it's it's a different kind of adaptation, but definitely the bones of the book are, are in the film. But again, be wary of, of spoilers there. Uh, and Fingernails is from... There's a really interesting story behind this movie in that Kate Blanchett uh, essentially brought it to life. Uh, she saw the Greek director Christos Nikos' uh, first movie, Apples, in Venice when she was the chair of the jury that year um, and, and basically pitched him on wanting to work with him. And he had an idea. This is his next movie. And it's got Jesse Buckley, Riz Ahmed, and Jeremy Allen White in a love triangle that's at once very much about our moment. Uh, and very also out of time. And though that balance is something that the director plays with in an interesting way that I think marks a an exciting new voice and one who probably wouldn't have gotten to make a movie of this visibility, at least for English-speaking audiences, this early without the aid of somebody like Kate Blanchett, who is the lead producer on it. Man, between her and Margot Robbie, what a year for actresses turned like surprise power producers. I like this. Yeah. I mean, Margot Robbie, potential two-time Best Picture nominee this year. Yeah. I can't wait till someone can actually talk to her about that. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you guys hear the low the low estimate that Margot Robbie is making $50 million off Barbie? But that's like probably very low. Uh, yeah. That's like Robert Downey Jr. Avengers money. I love yeah. that. I yeah. couldn't be happier for her to make that much money. <laughs> Um, okay, so David, you mentioned Paul Meskel, and to do your, the last first look that we can talk about for now, um, he also co-stars in what I think might not be my most anticipated love story of the year plus. Um, talk to me about All of Us Strangers. What to say about All of Us Strangers. Which only you have seen <laughs> and can't say much about and don't want to, we know. You know, it, this is a movie directed by Andrew Haig, who you would know from the film Weekend, which is one of my favorite films. Uh, he directed most of the HBO series Looking. He directed Charlotte Rampling to an Oscar nomination for 45 years. This film is adapted from a Japanese novel, and it's quite different from the book, uh, which I read after seeing the film. Without spoiling anything or, or saying anything really about the merits of the movie, um, it's got these two strands that come together in a really surprising way. Um, It stars Andrew Scott, Paul Meskel, Claire Foy, and Jamie Bell. But the the most striking thing I learned about the making of this movie is it's incredibly personal to Andrew Hagen. I I think you feel that touch throughout the movie. Um, A big part of it is the lead character played by Andrew Scott uh, returning to his childhood home. They actually filmed in Andrew Haig's childhood home, which he had not been to in over 40 years. It's insane that they got away with that. Like, that's such a production headache that, like, most people would not attempt. It's incredible. Yeah, and filming all around that little suburb as well. They they got the permits. Katie, he grew up in Pinewood Studios, so it wasn't that hard. (laughs) That's why he was a born filmmaker. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. He was an orphan owned by Pinewood. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I think that that... Unknowing that going in is um, it, it'll add a certain weight to the experience of watching the film. And I also just want to highlight Andrew Scott occupying that lead role. He's a really tremendous actor, mostly, I think, for most people known from Fleabag. Um, this is his first lead role in a movie, and it's, um, I'd say, long overdue. 
Yeah, I mean, Andrew Scott is so good. Um, I love him in that movie Pride that people should see. As we talk about Labor, that's a great Labor movie. Um, yeah. But if also you can watch, um, Andrew Scott did probably one of the most lauded productions of Hamlet in, like, our He's lifetimes. He's amazing in that. Um, there are clips of it on YouTube. It's genuinely incredible. I haven't seen the full production because when it came to New York, um, he was not involved in it anymore. But yeah, he's like just such a great actor. And it's crazy that even in some tiny indie, he hasn't led a movie. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, my husband had some subscription to some UK theater streaming service. So I have seen that whole production, uh, which also stars a pretty amazing Juliet Stevenson. And it is, uh, yeah, definitely worth the watch. And I, I thought of it a lot watching this movie, just seeing what he is capable of when he's really center stage. Yeah, the, I feel like this is what Rebecca was saying at the beginning, where at this point, everyone's a contender. Like, I don't want to think like, oh, Andrew Scott's first Oscar nomination. Like, I don't want to get too excited, <laughs> but it feels possible right now. And that's kind of the delight of August for all this stuff. Mm. It's a hard balance for us to play it cool because <laughs> all we care about is we're we're, obje- we're, we're objective reporters here. <laughs> yes, yes. For the next month, <laughs> I think I think we all kind of get to pick our little internal favorites of things go on. Mm-hmm. But then you know we were talking about Toronto um, and all the mysteries that are there. You know, you guys are getting to see a lot of this stuff early, but then there's just as many mysteries in store, and you know who knows what other new favorites could supplant it. It's fun. So I did want to talk about the Maestro trailer at the end of this. Uh, discussion of first looks, even though we kind of keep coming back to Maestro, which maybe says what a large space it occupies in our brains. And just for me, like, I loved A Star is Born so much and somehow, like, didn't anticipate enough how much Maestro would intrigue me. And I watched that trailer and I was like, God, this looks amazing. And it really grabbed me. And I think it grabbed enough people to the point that discussion of the fake nose has kind of dominated everything. Um, And I I mean, I think maybe the smartest take I've seen on that whole nose discourse was Mark Harris and Slate, if anyone wants to read that, rather than me badly summarize it. Um, but heading into Venice, um, you mean, Richard, you'll be there for its big premiere. It just feels like the big one right now, right? It's the most Venice-y, <laughs> you know, of the big <laughs> movies in that lineup. I mean, obviously, some of the Italian movies are more Venice-y, technically, Venezia-y. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you think back, it's a shame that we, we won't get these star moments at the festival because of the strikes, but like, you think back to Star is Born premiering there in 2018, Lady Gaga, you know, legs dangling off the side of the wood-sided motorboat, like, you know, uh, there's something about that kind of mood of old world, sort of opulent, whatever, that is weirdly, even though it's not an old world story, like captured in the Maestro trailer. It's not giving away the whole plot. It's just, it's very impressionistic. It's creating a mood or kind of telling you the the potential viewer what the mood of the movie is going to be um, without really giving away, we know who it's about, but we don't know how it's about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just really intrigued by it. And I really think that more movie trailers should take a cue from that. People who cut those things, like I know you have to advertise the movie kind of on its sellable beats, but like this one is just very like, you know, inviting you into the theater or into your Netflix whatever, um, rather than, you know, explaining the entire thing to you, which I love. It definitely proves a level of confidence in the film, I think, because as you say, they don't show us everything. They don't really indicate what the filmmaking might be like or the story. And and I, I think Bradley Cooper has, has shown us he is a really strong filmmaker, unlike some uh, actors turned directors that I won't name, but <laughs> I really I, wonder I who you have in mind. Right stares, now. <laughs> stares at Toronto lineup. <laughs> I think um, he also seems like someone who may push his filmmaking style, you know, beyond what it was in his previous film and try different things. And I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm really excited to see how it plays in Venice because I think it it could be such a huge success if it plays well there. I just remember watching A Star Is Born 
at Toronto. So it had premiered at Venice. People were raving about it, which was like a really happy surprise because I think people were a little bit like, oh, what's that going to be like? Um, but when I watched it and the minute that the, the the title of the film comes up as Gaga is walking down mm-hmm. this sort of alleyway singing to herself, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, we are in such capable hands. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I have seen some of like the meanest, straightest film Twitter people be like, Bradley Cooper's A Star is Born is one of the best American debuts in years. Really excited about Maestro. <laughs> like he just has something uh, based on one film. Um, and I guess this trailer, he just has a sort of sensibility that, is throwbacky, but also modern and forward-thinking, and and um, I think that's such a fascinating mix. And and bringing that to bear on the life of one of the most important artists in American history, I think that's a huge topic to tackle. But I think he's the right person for the job. I mean, didn't Spielberg kind of select him for it? In, in Spielberg some way? and Scorsese are both producers on it. I think maybe because each of them was going to make it at some point. Oh, um, okay. mm, untangling yeah. that, someone should maybe we should write about that at some point to figure out how that happened. We'll study those PGA marks too to see who was actually really involved. It's the first time mm-hmm. they've like collaborated on something high profile like this. I think, which is, I mean, what better blessing could you hope to get as a relatively new director from those yeah. two? Okay, so as I said, we will have many more first looks coming. Um, Rebecca, you're back from vacation and jumping right into it with your own share of um, things to see, looking forward to. So I guess keep checking back to VF.com. And don't worry about spoilers. We're going to really do our best to just tease these movies and keep everything very intriguing since I think the discovery is part of the fun. Oh, and if people, speaking of first looks, I did my first ever, sort of, uh, for the Gilded Age season two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is on the site now. It's a trailer and some images um, of a very opulent and uh, guiltily entertaining show. I love that. When does it come back? Uh, not till late October. So. Oh, well, we're doing our Flag Means Death also, which also is until October. So, big week. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. So now it's time to wrap up our August book club with Leave the World Behind, the novel by Ruman Alam that will soon be a movie on Netflix starring Julia Roberts um, and Mahershala Ali. I read this book when it was first published and then was kind of like looking forward to reading it again, um, not remembering how incredibly bone chilling it was and remains. I was maybe not prepared for what this book would do to me on a second reading. Um did you guys also reread it? Um, did anyone catch up with this book for the first time for this book club? This was my first time. I hadn't read it before. Did you feel prepared? I did not feel prepared. <laughs> I went in pretty blind. I, I guess I just wasn't aware when it came out. I think I had had a child that year. There was year, a pandemic that like, year. You might have been busy. <laughs> there was a pandemic. There was a lot <laughs> happening for me. So um, I was in my own <laughs> crisis. So I didn't read this book. But um, it's such an eerie read now that we've had these couple years of the pandemic and that experience. And to realize he wrote this before mm-hmm. that it happened, it really is just so chilling the way he captures fear. Because I think we all had little 
doses of that as we were going through something so unknown um, at the time. Well, and you were also reading it um, as Los Angeles was preparing for a hurricane and there were earthquakes going on at the same time. The, the climate yeah, apocalypse I mean, aspect you know, of this. There, is... there, there's, a, there's a lot of relatable opportunities to read this book right now. But uh, when my entire neighborhood's power went out, and except my house, I was like, is this is this my moment? Are <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of deer going to appear? <laughs> yeah. It's mainly coyotes over here. But yeah, there were, it, it, it's... I think the way he captures those emotions is just so incredible and so relatable and and very creepy. So yeah, it was a, it was a, I'm glad I read it. I'm, I'm I'm sorry I missed it the first time, but I think this was actually a more interesting time to read it for first experience. Yeah, um, Richard, you reviewed Knock at the Cabin for us, which is a movie I didn't see, possibly because it like terrified me even more than this book did. Um, but I wonder if the similarities between these things struck you, and if um, this as a movie feels like it would be along those lines, or can I do something different? I'm curious about how the movie, it, it, you know, wh- what tack they take with the adaptation, because something that really struck me when I read the book, um, I had a lot of friends who were reading it. Turns out Alam and I have mutual friends. And so I was like, oh, it's just some friend's book. And then I read it and I was like, oh, it was actually beautifully written. Um, is that the interior sort of monologue, if you want to call it that, of the novel is so sharp and observant mm-hmm. and like just uh, not just even about like the the creepy stuff that happens as the book you know, as the story unfolds, but even in the earlier stretches where you're, it's just about a family going on vacation, all of this sort of mind worrying stuff that like kind of does creep up on you when you're away from home. Um, that I think is so powerful in the book and all of its suggestion and, and all that. I don't know how you literalize that. Um, I think that it's Sam Esmel, right? Directing it. So like, mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. that he's, he's a very cerebral guy. And so I would hope then that, that, that and I think, um, his show uh, Homecoming uh, has some shades similar with with Leave the World Behind, so I hope that he's the right pick for it. But it's just like a really compelling thriller in a way, but that is also very literary, I think, um, which is rare to find. The other thing about that internal monologue that was so striking, and again, I don't know how you translate to a film, is how it jumps between characters all the time, is that you're inside the daughter Rose's head at one moment, and then you're inside the head of um, Ruth. And we say like, Ruth and her husband, G.H., are the owners of this vacation house where this uh, family from Brooklyn has uh, rented for the week. The family is white. Ruth and G.H. are black. And they show up at the door in the middle of the night and... You go inside uh, the, you know, the mother Amanda's head with some pretty racist thoughts going through her head and then jump right back to them. Um, It's this omniscient but really personal narrator. And then as the, you know, mystery goes on, you kind of jump to what's happening in New York where subways are stopped under the water and stuff like that. Um, And it's really powerful, like that sense of like what the characters know and what they don't know and what they understand about each other and themselves. Um, And I think movies can capture that when they're, you know, really personal and based in people. Um, But it's a tricky thing to do. And it's so much of the power of the book for me. Yeah, it's so stuck in the experiences of these characters that when the narrator does go on this little detour and offers a glimpse of what the hell is going on outside it's it's really terrifying mm-hmm. and it's it's almost playful because it's it's not the structure exactly of this book it it is a surprise when he does that especially the first few times um but it in totality creates this mood of profound unease because you have these experiences this family experience that is so relatable and so familiar and then he just throws in these little dollops of you know, not not the supernatural by any means, but um, of things that you can't know mm-hmm. um, if you're in that situation, and it it's the ultimate sort of terror. 
and it's just so perfectly realized in this book. I read it um, when it was first published, so I this was my second go around, and I was much more attuned to that formal quality of the book this time. That understanding of taking you in and out of this family's experience um, with kind of a a nasty little sense of playfulness. I think. I think a lot of things in the last. I mean, I mean, not to be, you know college freshman about it, but a lot of things post 9-11 uh, have tried to tap in, and pre, obviously, um, I mean, this goes back to, you know, probably a century or more of like trying to tap into a particular kind of global anxiety, but really an American anxiety about things, um, cataclysms, both man-made and environmental and what whatnot. And a lot of them kind of miss the mark by either a little or a lot. And um, this one, though, I think in, in sort of getting at what we don't know about the world and about each other, uh, either in intimate ways or, or in broadly like sociological ways. Like I think that this book, like by not answering a lot, it, it does answer a lot weirdly, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. it, I think that ambiguity, that unknowableness um, is the best approximation or one of the best approximations of how this all feels, quote unquote, um, that I've read. Well, I feel like the um, the sense of what you can't know and what the characters don't know and, you know, their cell phones don't work. They still have power in this house. Um, but there's so many aspects of this, you know, I guess because I've like been to vacation houses where you're like the minute you put down your phone, you're like, well, what's going on? Like, what if I miss something major? It like kind of takes that into like the most apocalyptic version of that. I feel like it's so attuned to regular human behavior and then twists it in this tiny way of like what you do when you are yourself but put in this extraordinary circumstance. Um there's it's uh, that's why it's so, so unsettling for me, I think, because it's weirdly relatable in a way. I'm also curious how the film will approach sort of the dynamics between the four main characters in this house, because I think the, the dynamic between Amanda and Ruth was a really interesting part of the book to me. And from what I understand, uh, Julia Roberts is playing Amanda and Ethan Hawke plays her husband. But the other couple who owns the home is played well, Mahershala Lee is playing the the man, and in the book, that couple is much older than... Yes, and Denzel Washington was originally cast, reportedly. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that would have... But I guess they're going to have to tweak it, and and it it seems like that may also change the dynamic uh, between the four characters, and since so much of it is centered on just them in that house, I, I'm curious how that goes. Well, the actress playing Ruth, who is on, on industry, Mahela Harold, um, is born in 1996, so I don't think that they could be... a couple so it's different definitely changed something there yeah and the the whole thing about ruth is sort of her experience as an older woman and a mother so yeah that'll be interesting yeah i was also noticing kind of having that casting in mind like ruth is thinking about her daughter a lot and about you know being you know Mm -hmm. she's you know more liberal than her parents and like doesn't want her mom to like bring her kids fussy clothes and stuff like that so i wonder if you bring some of that dynamic in there if she's like a bridge between the grown-ups and the teenage children of this other mm. family there's i feel like there's potential in there there's also that moment where someone tells gh in the book that he looks like denzel washington and just what yes what a, <laughs> oh yeah that, that was a big point was of, that was a big point of discussion yeah when, when denzel was cast <laughs> So, like, Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington are, like, such an iconic pair. Like, they've been in movies together. She mm-hmm. was she handed out his second Oscar. Um, I would have loved to see that reunion. Not that, like, Mahershala Ali is ever an unwelcome casting addition. I'm sure he'll be great as well. The the Julia Roberts-Ham Esmail relationship is quite interesting. She was the lead of Homecoming, which Richard mentioned. And she also, Gaslit was executive produced by Esmail. Mm-hmm. So this is... 
you know, I believe their third really significant collaboration together, and she doesn't work that often. Mm-hmm. So clearly he is uh, a filmmaker she's quite drawn to. Do you think Soderbergh's jealous? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is also just really exciting to think about Julia Roberts in this kind of tone. Like, we don't see that very often. You know, she's done thrillers and stuff like that, but it's been a while. I, right? Am I forgetting something? No, um, yeah, you're right. But you think about, like, I, I think she should have won her Oscar for Sleeping with the Enemy, good as she is in Aaron Brockovich. Maybe she should have, too. She's so good in that movie. So with seeing Julia in sort of more worried, pensive, darker mode, um, which is what she got to do on on her two previous Esmail projects, um, is exciting. Well, I'm playing this character who's kind of like selfish and like not making yeah. good decisions. And, you know, I don't I doubt you'll get as much of her internal monologue, which is where a lot of the more damning stuff for Amanda happens. But, you know, she's not like the plucky heroine or even like in Gaslit, where she was a complicated character. Like there's not like a big enticing personality. She's like not someone you would want to be stuck in a house with. And I'd be interested to see how that pans out, too. I think of Esmail as a very virtuosic filmmaker. He you know, you think of Mr. Robot, the the positioning of the camera in that show was always a subject of great discussion. And mm-hmm. he's someone who's very, very interested in pushing those limits. Um, and so I, I wonder how that will be applied to a story like this, which is very, at times, unbearably intimate and really beautifully nuanced between the characters and has a really intricate understanding of human behavior and experience. And not to say he's not attuned to that in his work, but he's so he can work on such a big canvas. Um, and clearly with the level of talent he's um, acquired here, it seems that he is going to be working on a big canvas again. I, I wonder how how you could apply that this story uh, to that level and what ki- in what kinds of ways he might try to push things. How many flamingos will we see descending into the pool <laughs> at this house? I mean, I'm thinking about the level of anxiety this book brings on in me. I don't think a movie would be, like, unpleasant, but I do feel like I'm going to have to gear myself up. I mean, I'm thinking of, like, you know, Bird Box, like, being the Netflix, like, winter thriller hit they've had in the past. Like, I wonder if people are really going to want to put themselves in for this very specific version of uh, the end of the world come Christmas. I feel like it's, it's like, a perfect Netflix movie because yeah. I think watching this at home, I think people will really tune in to watch it at home. Well, I don't really see the similarities, Katie, because one is an apocalyptic thing starring a former rom-com queen turned Oscar-winning actress. <laughs> oh, wait. I, okay, now I do get it now. <laughs> I never actually saw Bird Box. I don't know if it's as disturbing as I... You're not uh, supposed to look at it, Katie. That's good. <laughs> That's true. I've made the right choices. Well, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week, truly kicking off our fall festival season. Um, Really exciting time of year. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com. Lots of more first looks to come, as we said. We're on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I'm at Twitter at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of David Canfield's dog, who you do not hear on these episodes because of our amazing editor and producer, Brett Fuchs, <laughs> goes to me. It's small and scrappy, but really grabs people by the throat. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the review's director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. 
Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.